This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg asked Verizon and AT&T to delay their launch of a new 5G service, saying that the new service will create, quote, widespread and unacceptable disruption to aircraft electronics. The wireless carriers first rejected the request, but reversed their decision Monday to delay the launch by two weeks. The FAA is working to identify potential interferences and priority airports that need buffer zones for safe flying. The White House is expected to release more than 500,000 at-home test kits for COVID-19 this month. Key community areas like health centers and clinics will distribute those test kits to citizens who may not have medical insurance. This effort comes as the Omicron variant of coronavirus continues to spread across the country. The White House will also increase support for hospitals experiencing an influx of patients. The Pentagon has announced that the defense secretary will now have sole authority to approve requests regarding deployment of the D.C. National Guard. The DOD secretary will have the authority to deploy troops within 48 hours and authorize them to participate in civil law enforcement. This announcement comes after an investigation into last year's January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. The Defense Department's Office of Inspector General has released its top 10 management challenges for fiscal year 2022. Those challenges range from maintaining advantage and strategic competition to retaining a modern workforce. Courtney Phones is the management challenges lead at the Department of Defense Office of Inspector General. Courtney, welcome to the program. Hi, Mimi. Thanks for having me. Start by telling us how your office decides what challenges go into the list. Sure. So we, you know, canvas and look around at what we're seeing through our oversight work. We also look at what we may have reported on in the previous year. And then we brainstorm any new topics. We also solicit input from DOD senior leaders. We want to see what they say the challenges are that they're facing. We also consider any oversight work in other parts of the oversight community. And we also consider input from Congress and any statutory requirements we, ha- we have. And we use all of that collectively to decide what we think the top challenges are for the department. And last year, Courtney, the list included transforming data into a strategic asset. But it's not on the, this year's list. Why? Yes. So we decided not to have a separate focused challenge regarding data, but you'll see it as sort of a common thread throughout several of our other challenges where we talk about the need for having accurate data and for using that data to make informed decisions. You'll see it in several of our other challenges. So still important, just not as a standalone challenge this year. Well, one challenge that you did add this year was recruiting and retaining a modern workforce. What do you mean by modern? Yes. So when we talk about modern, we're often talking about emerging technologies, new domains such as space and the cyber domain. Um, We're talking about like science, technology, engineering and the math fields commonly referred to as STEM. These sort of advanced technology personnel that we need to develop new technologies for the Department of Defense and stay ahead of the curve in strategic competition. The report says, uh, quote, the DOD OIG seeks to plan oversight projects more fully 
dynamically and holistically. Can you give me an example of what that would look like? Yes, yeah, so in tandem with our management challenges, we also annually develop an oversight plan. This is our, uh, our assessment and estimate of the work that we're gonna perform in the upcoming year, but it's specific to planned work based on what we're seeing exactly at that moment um, and what we've seen and assessed over the full year. However, there's a lot of work that might be emerging that isn't included on that oversight plan. So we leave room for ourselves to add new projects as we need. So another item on the, the challenges list is, um, quote, increasing agility in acquisition and contract management. This has been an issue for a while. I mean, what will you be looking at specifically? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, as you know, the acquisition and contracting realm for the Department of Defense is a very, very long-standing challenge. Uh, the Government Accountability Office has included it on its own high-risk list for many, many years. And we decided to make it its own standalone challenge this year just to draw continued attention to that issue. One thing that we're really going to focus on with that is the issue of pricing and getting a fair and reasonable price for what the department buys. Or are there any areas of improvement since last year that you can talk about? Yeah, so actually I'll talk briefly about in the acquisition and contracting realm, we did see some improvement. DOD has been issuing some acquisition reforms. This gives the department much more flexibility and agility, as the title of that challenge says, to make decisions on how it buys what it needs more effectively and efficiently. And then in other areas, we see some progress with, for example, financial management and budgeting. The department has been addressing all of the uh, recommendations that we make as auditors and really taking action on those to improve their business processes and practices. So how does the Office of the Inspector General measure the success, Courtney, of DOD's ability to address these challenges? We do that through the oversight plan and the work that we do. So our body of work includes audits, evaluations, and then also investigations. So our oversight plan only really highlights the work that we plan to do in audits and evaluations. But much of our work is unplanned. You know, we deal with emerging issues and then our investigative components, our criminal investigations group and our administrative investigative groups are looking at all kinds of emerging or reactive measures that they need to look at to do investigations that also will tie into those challenges and we'll see success that way. So, I mean, this is a guiding document for your office. You mentioned the oversight um, that you're gonna be doing. How do you prioritize um, from this list and, and does, do those priorities have the potential to change as the year progresses? Yes, we do have some priorities. We'll take a look at what what is a, an emerging or important topic right now? What would be the most timely project to do? And we have a group of senior leaders that we sort of talk through that and see, is this the right project at the right time? We also take measure of what's happening out there and should we be more flexible and instead of doing something that we may have put on our oversight plan, consider something different. For example, in December, we announced an evaluation of the Navy's Red Hill fuel storage operations in Hawaii. You know, that's a current topic that they're talking about in the press, and it's a major issue that we have to look at as the watchdog for the Department of Defense. All right. Well, Courtney, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
Coming next, improving customer experience could boost the public's trust in government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, we discuss GSA's new goals to streamline government services. We'll be right back. The White House's new executive order on customer experience aims to rebuild the public's trust in the federal government. Under that order, the General Services Administration has multiple initiatives to streamline its public-facing services. Martha Doris is former Deputy Associate Administrator for the Office of Citizen Services at GSA. Martha, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. What is GSA's role in implementing this executive order? So um, their, their mission in the technology transformation services is to design and deliver a digital government with and for the American public. And their vision is really trusted modern government for all. And I think that gives you a, a good kind of overall sense of what their mission is. And, and when I think about the executive order, I also pull in like the president's management agenda, which listed which listed customer experience as a priority and section 280 of a11 which lays out a lot of the the measurement and identifies the kind of the scale and the the scope of everything that's involved in terms of high impact services so i think in the executive order specifically they have responsibilities around um, creating a roadmap for a transformed or reimagined usa.gov and then really uh, working with the VA to um, to integrate seamlessly login.gov. So I want to ask you. I want to ask you about both of those. But <clears throat> first, if you could tell us what the current problems in government services are that this order is really trying to fix. Um, so you know, there's been a lot of uh, talk about um, improving government services and customer experience for many, many years. And honestly, I don't think there, it was, we've talked about customer service for years. This order, the reason it's so, such a landmark um, uh, executive order for people in the customer experience space is no one really understands what customer experience is. So when you really take a look at what customer experience is, it gives you uh, you know, it's everywhere from understanding your customers to how do you make decisions within an organization that impact your customers and what's your strategy and how do you measure it and and um, what's the culture like and how do you, you know, how are, is your employee experience? So <clears throat> the, the problems are really to help across all of these platforms to help give some structure to the governance process within within. Um, government on how decisions are made that impact your your customers if they're citizens or whatever the you know public seniors on and on and so that's been a big a big issue um, in terms of priority it's never really been there's been nibbles around the edge as I say but it's never been front and center with a group of complementary legislation guidance everything that hits on websites which are an issue and an omni-channel experience which agencies are not really doing um so it's it's uh you've got the governance issues the prioritization issues leadership issues on its importance which we get by having an executive order like that there's some there's some um 
requirements for an organization or a person to be in charge of the high impact services within an agency, which is some agencies have chief customer officers and some don't. So this makes it a requirement to at least have somebody who's looking at the HISPs within that organization. I could probably take the whole time talking about what the, <laughs> the problems this could. executive order is trying to solve, or, you know, trying to solve. But but you you had mentioned GSA's websites login.gov and USA.gov. They've been around for a while. You ran USA.gov. Tell me about those websites. So USA.gov has really been the federal front door for over 20 years. It's um, when it was created, and I'm gonna I'm gonna bring in the USA.gov contact center into this conversation because it's gonna be a huge miss if they don't look at the website and the contact center together to create that omni-channel experience. It's always been a site where it was like a link site where people could search for things, they could go on USA.gov and then they would be, um, they could navigate or search to another agency's website. It's never been a transactional site and a really a one-stop shop where you could conduct business across all the agencies that, that you as a as a citizen or a member of the public um, needed to accomplish with the government. So login.gov, you know, and, and GSA's got everything it needs and has, this is nothing new for GSA, to be honest. We, you know, we've been doing security and, and uh, authentication and all of these services to enable agencies for a long time. And login.gov has been a huge road a roadblock to agencies and to gsa being able to create that one-stop shop or no wrong door really for all the agencies to be able to have you know authenticated transactional uh service to provide those services through usa.gov so how will improving customer experience for the taxpayer ultimately enhance public trust in government which is the goal one of the goals right well, we know that, and, and data proves that when this, when a when a citizen or member of the public, people have a good experience when interacting with government, they are more likely to trust. And we have, you know, we have data on that, especially with the VA and how much they've improved their trust in um, the services at the VA by focusing on veteran experience over the past five or six years. So it, it not only improves trust, but it improves voluntary compliance with things like filling out your census or uh, paying your taxes. It improves employee experience, uh, and it, it's really more efficient when the citizen or the public, when some, when the, a person really goes on to um, a government, tries to get their problem solved, and they can do it the first time they try. So all of that really just elevates the the trust that you have in your government to be able to to provide services to you all right well martha we'll leave it at that thank you so much for being on the program thank you coming next what determines the balance of power between the u.s and china still ahead on government matters we look at the role of diplomacy alliances and strategic choices we'll be right back While maintaining America's technological edge with China is critical, ultimately the balance of power will not be determined by technology, but by diplomacy, alliances, and strategic choices. 
That's according to Joseph Nye. He is former Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, former Dean of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, and currently he's a professor there at Harvard. Professor Nye, so nice to have you on the program. Welcome. Well, nice to be with you. So how is the relationship between the U.S. and China fundamentally different from the relationship the U.S. had with the Soviet Union? Well, the big difference is that we're profoundly interdependent with China, both economically, we have a half a trillion dollars worth of trade, and ecologically. Um, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union, nobody worried about climate change. And climate change can do great damage to the United States, and there's absolutely no way to fix it without working with the Chinese, who are the biggest emitter of CO2. I make a distinction in my new book, which is called Do Morals Matter, between power over other countries and power with other countries. Uh, there are issues like climate change where we can't solve it alone. And that's why you have to be able to accomplish your own goals to work with somebody else. So we're rivals with China on many things, but uh, we have to cooperate with them on others or we won't get what we want. You say it's a three-dimensional chess game that the U.S. is playing with China. That sounds awfully complicated. Well, it is, but it, think of it this way. If you're going back to the real Cold War uh, with the Soviets, uh, there was one chessboard, and you sort of put your pawns and your castles and you're worried about your king and queen all in military terms. But uh, when you think about the uh, competition with China, uh, there's another board that matters uh, just as much, which is economic. Uh, there are more countries that have a majority of their trade with China than with the U.S. Uh, that wasn't true during the Cold War. And if you go to a third dimension, a third board of ecological uh, transnational issues like pandemics or climate change, um, as I mentioned, uh, you can't deal with this alone there. Uh, the power structure is totally different from military or economic power. It's chaotic. So it's a different game. And the one thing to keep in mind is that if you play a two-dimensional strategy in a three-dimensional game, you're going to lose. With respect to uh, economics, then, you say that the rules governing economic relations will need to be changed. How so? Well, I think uh, there are some areas where we and China can continue to work on managing the trade we have uh, uh, through the organizations like the World Trade Organization and so forth. But there are other areas where uh, we may want to set up uh, groups of uh, what you might call uh, the uh, democratic countries or the uh, countries that are uh, willing to hold to a higher standard so that when you come to telecommunications or equipment that involves surveillance or things of that matter, uh, we might want to have a special set of trade relations with those countries. When they think of it as concentric circles. There'll be an outer circle where China is, uh, is a member, but an inner circle where they're welcome to join if they can live up to the standards, but uh, it's very unlikely they'll be able to. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about those uh, working with those other democratic countries that you mentioned in a way that would ensure a level playing field for companies that are operating abroad. Well, it's, it, it will make a difference to a number of companies. For example, 
if you want to sell certain equipment or purchase certain equipment at a preferential rate from Japan or from Europe, uh, you can do it. If, uh, if you're trying to sell into the Chinese market, you'll find that there is a, a different rate or uh, it'll be a little bit more difficult. Uh, we're going through this now as the administration, Biden administration debates the question of uh, what semiconductor chips, for example, uh, will sell to China and will the European companies that are important in lithography, for example, uh, can uh, sell when they're dependent upon American patents. Um, so we're already at the brink of, of this type of problem. And Professor, I wonder um, how your concept of soft power applies to the U.S. relationship with China. Well, both the U.S. and China have been making major efforts to uh, develop their soft power, which is the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payment. Uh, this is why China is engaged in what you might call vaccine diplomacy. And uh, similarly, why President Biden has said that we've uh, offered more than a, a billion doses of vaccine to other countries. This is a competition for attractiveness or soft power. And the Chinese take it seriously, and so should we. So what mistakes do you think current government leaders uh, in the U.S. are may, might be making with respect to managing that relationship with China? Well, I, to go back to that metaphor about the three chess boards, I think we're doing pretty well on the military board. Um, and certainly John Kerry has been making major efforts on the third board related to climate change. Uh, but on the economic board, uh, the Trump administration pulled us out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement. And the politics of trade in the Congress right now, both Democrats and Republicans are skeptics. And so we're sort of uh, playing with a hand tied behind our back on that uh, second board. All right. Well, Professor Nice, thanks so much for being with us and nice talking to you. Nice to be back. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for the email list on our homepage. We're back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, 
include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.